You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. There's certainly good reason to think about rebalancing and to just keep a close eye on the mix of assets that you're exposed to as rates rise. There's going to be more opportunities for bonds, basically. You know, bonds that have delivered very low returns in recent years, we're going to start to see those tending to deliver a bit better return. And so, you know, that might be a place to park some money that might have been sitting around in a savings account where you said, I'm not even going to bother <laughs> with the bond market right now. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but you still might be wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more I can do now to secure my financial future? Time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Boy, it seems like in the blink of an eye, we have all lived through this once-in-a-lifetime, let's hope, once-in-a-lifetime pandemic with a massive loss of life and jobs. And now we are faced with inflation, mortgage rates that were up and are now down, predictions that we could be headed for a recession by the year 2023, and a war that Russia has launched with Ukraine. The images and videos I've been seeing out of Ukraine this week are just awful. And I want to say that our thoughts and our prayers are with everyone impacted. There is nothing quite as unsettling or uncertain as war. It is just impossible to predict. And history tells us how easily the whole world can be thrown into chaos. And I know that Beyond the immediate concerns we all have for global stability, for loss of life, which are, of course, paramount, we also have real financial concerns. We're worried about what's going on in the markets. We're worried about what all of this means for our investments, our long-term financial futures. But I want to start off this show by saying that I hope everyone listening is resisting the urge to take action. It's a very, very human urge. We just want to do something. But people often flee to investments they feel are safer during times like these, like treasuries, like gold. But for long-term investors, the stock market has actually historically been a pretty good place to be during these kind of times. A year after Pearl Harbor, the S&P 500 was up 15%. A year after the invasion of Iraq, the markets were up 35%. During the 40 plus years of the Cold War, we saw average returns of 10%. And more recently, studies showed that people who stayed the course during the 2008 recession and stayed in the markets fared much better long-term than those who pulled out and tried to get back in at a later date. All of which is not to say that the next few days or weeks or months will be pleasant for investors or pleasant for consumers. We know gas may hit $4 a gallon and Russia and Ukraine are also big suppliers of wheat and other grain. And so we could feel this in the supermarkets as well. But today, and I've been wanting to do this for a while, we are just going to get strategic. We're going to talk these things out. We're going to look at the information that we need to have at our disposal in order to 
remain calm, in order to maintain our long-term focus and to stick to the plans we've made. And we're going to do it with the help of Ben Keyes. Ben is the Rowan Family Foundation professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. He studies issues related to household finance, real estate, and economics. He also serves as an associate editor of the Journal of Financial Economics, and he was previously a staff economist at the Federal Reserve. So when we dig into interest rates and what's going on there, we've got a good one by our side. Ben, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jean. So can we just start with an overview? What are your overall thoughts on what's going on with the economy today? What are you seeing? How are you feeling? I think you did a great job in your introduction of sort of setting the stage. And I I think my view is actually really closely aligned with those you set up up top. I mean, we're in an environment with tremendous uncertainty. It feels like you need to be an expert, not only on epidemiology, but but now also geopolitical risk to try to understand what's going on in the world. To your earlier point, it's heartbreaking what's happening in Europe right now. And just the loss of life and the humanitarian crises that are looming are, are really daunting. And you layer that on top of a global pandemic, which is still, you know, taking almost 2,000 deaths per day in the United States. And so, you know, I think this is an extremely challenging time. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what direction uh, some of these trends are going to go in. But I think, you know, the key, at least to try to root things in the economy, really to try to understand, well, how is the war going to disrupt things for us in the U.S.? How will we emerge out of COVID? And then to your point about inflation and rates, how do we unwind some of the policy choices um, that were used to deal with the shutdown of the economy in 2020? I would love to just take that step by step and break it down because some economists are saying there's a 50% likelihood that we'll be in recession by 2023. And yet, you turn on CNBC or, or other channels and you hear people saying that the economy is actually very strong and that the jobs numbers are good. It feels like so much disconnected information. Yeah, there's a real range of messaging that I think we're all getting from, from different corners, some of whom have vested interests in these things. But if you do take a step back, it's true that the labor market is incredibly strong right now. The labor market is bouncing back very rapidly. And, and that to me, suggests it's unlikely that we're going to be falling into a recession as soon as 2023. So I'd be skeptical of those kinds of 50% numbers. I don't think it's equally likely that we'll be in a recession versus out of one. You know, just looking at where the labor market is, right? So we're we're thinking of unemployment rates that are now down to 4%. And that's an astonishing success story, you know, really thanks to aggressive policy at the federal level. Employment will likely recover to pre-COVID levels in under three years as we keep up this pace. And you can compare that to how long it took to recover coming out of the Great Recession. That was more than six years. And so we're going to recover from a labor market standpoint in about half the time. And that's really remarkable and speaks to, you know, huge efforts to sort of jumpstart the economy coming out of COVID. Before you leave the labor markets and the employment situation, Mm -hmm. I was just digging into the last jobs release and women. And women have still not recovered. Men have recovered the jobs that they lost heading into the pandemic. Women have not. And part of the reason is that there are over a million women who have just not returned to the labor force. Do you think that will eventually remedy itself? 
Yeah, I mean, there's sort of three main sources of folks who've left the labor force. And I think these may cut differently a bit for men and women. So one is early retirement and people leaving the labor force sooner than they otherwise would have. A, a second group is those who are still suffering from the after effects of COVID, so long COVID. And I think that's a real question mark on the economy, how many people will be limited in their capacity to return to work. And then the last category, which I think is really uh, strongly different by gender, is caregiving for mm. both the old and the young. And so with all the disruptions to schools and various health challenges, still the absence of a vaccine for those under five, which is an issue in my household, you know, I think there's still a, a lot of question marks there about whether people will come back. And we're still almost 3 million jobs below where we were in February of 2020, pre-pandemic. And so there is a real gender imbalance there. And I think, you know, some of this is going to be a function of what these jobs look like and how flexible are they going to be in terms of working from home versus going back in person. And then the big question, which is wage growth and will wages keep up with the inflation that we've seen? Yeah, that's a huge question. We're seeing for the first time employees and workers and, and our listeners writing to us and, and telling us that they've gotten significant raises. But of course, that's not happening across the board. Let's talk about the war because I, I do sort of want to step by step our way through this mm -hmm. so that we don't miss anything. Sure. As you look at the impact of the war on the economy, how do you see us feeling it most. And I know when we talk about Russia and gas prices, this is very closely tied to inflation. So we can talk about that as well. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the kinds of things that we purchase from that part of the world, it tends to be things like oil and gas, raw materials, not a lot of finished products coming out of that part of the world. But those things are going to factor into a variety of supply chains. And so I think the first order place where we'll see this is at the pump. And gas prices are already up over this last couple of weeks. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what direction that will go in and what measures will be put in place in order to try to encourage the rest of the world to produce more gasoline, more oil, basically, to try to compensate for some of the disruptions that are happening elsewhere. Gas prices are a, a relatively small part of most people's overall budget, but it's a very salient part of the budget, right? It's one of the only things we purchase where the price is posted in giant letters yeah. you know, outside of the store. <laughs> so it has this real outsized impact about how we think about prices. And, and also, I think, you know, for a lot of people, their commuting, it feels like uh, relatively fixed. Like it's a difficult thing to adjust on the fly. If you need to go drive to and from work or to and from the store, you don't necessarily have a lot of alternatives. And so the kind of adjustments that people make to high gas prices are often very gradual. Like what's the next car I'm going to buy? Am I, am I going to buy a more efficient car? Am I going to move somewhere that's less car dependent? And so those adjustment margins feel like bigger leaps. And so I think for whatever reason, you know, gasoline prices have a very strong effect on people's sort of feelings about how the economy is doing, even if it's a relatively small slice of the overall picture. I, I think to your broader point, like the longer term implications for what's happening are, are much harder to parse at this early stage. I, I just don't think we have a full grasp on what the extent of the humanitarian efforts um, that are going to be needed will be. I don't think we have a full sense of what the scope of involvement will be in, in some of these other NATO countries and whether things will sprawl into other areas. And so I think at this point, it makes sense to just be cautious and, and expect that from a domestic pocketbook standpoint, I think the main place where we'll really see this is, is at least for starters, when we're filling up our tanks. 
When we're thinking about inflation overall, and you know, gas prices are only one of the things. Before we even had a war, gas prices were up about, I think, 60% year over year, maybe a little bit more or less, depending on where you live. But that certainly wasn't all. We're seeing a number of different costs rise. The 7.5% rate of inflation that we hit on the last report is the highest in 40 years. I started college back in 1982, and that's when we hit it. And I remember 18% mortgage rates. I remember the constant conversation in and around inflation. Are we headed back there? And if we're not... This is where the Federal Reserve comes in, right? I mean, they have said that they will be out using the levers that they have, pulling on the levers that they have, interest rates and other things, to reduce the rise or spread of inflation. Yeah, it's a big policy challenge that the Fed is is placed in at the moment. And so we are seeing inflation rates that are, you know, six or seven percent, depending on your favorite measure. And that's well above the Fed's two percent inflation target. So, you know, the Fed as an institution has this dual mandate where they're trying to keep prices stable and to keep employment as full as possible. And and what we've seen in, in sort of coming out of the crisis that was induced by this pandemic. I'd say it's sort of a concerted effort to really improve the labor market and really focus on that with an acknowledgement that that keeping rates low can inflate some other types of asset bubbles. So things like the stock market and the housing market, which which hopefully we'll we'll talk about some more. But I think the challenge there is thinking about the broader implications of pandemic consumption. And this is something that the Fed has very little purview over, which is you know, what do you spend your money on in the midst of a pandemic? Well, you spent your money rather than going out to restaurants or traveling or, you know, things that we think of as services, people were buying goods and they were replacing things in their house. They were replacing their cars and doing a lot of those kinds of things. And so we had this shift from services to goods while we were all buying stuff. And and that really led to some of these supply chain issues and these shortages. And now as we're seeing, you know, this latest wave of cases fade, we're seeing a shift back um, away from goods and towards services. And you see this in the restaurant data. We're back to pre-COVID levels of eating out based on the open table data. Hotels are just a few percentage points below where they were pre-pandemic airplane trips. And so you know, some of this is going to just work its way through in terms of the supply chain issues. I think the broader inflationary pressure is going to come from this wage growth issue and this question that we were talking about before about the labor market. How are we going to pull these people back into the labor market? And if it requires paying them more money, then we can think about this inflationary cycle where workers demand more wages, firms raise prices in response, and that the sort of cycle can repeat itself. So it depends in part on worker power, and it depends in part on how those who have left the labor market respond in in terms of what it's going to take for them to come back. So the term we've all been reading in the newspaper is wage price spiral. Is that what you're talking about? And what needs to happen? I mean, I assume that's a bad thing, right? A wage price spiral where workers demand more, prices go up, workers demand more, prices go up is a bad thing. So what has to happen in order to stop the spiraling? Yeah, and this is where things get squishy because it's really about expectations. So this is really about the Fed being a disciplined actor and and having the sort of trust among those in the markets that say we're we're not going to go crazy and 
you know, swing wildly in terms of our targets and in terms of where we're setting rates. And here's, you know, what they call forward guidance. So here's where we expect rates to be. And here's where we anticipate we're going to raise rates and we're going to follow this path. And so being grownups in Washington, D.C. has some real benefits. And the Fed has built up, I think, a lot of credibility in terms of how they've provided a very clear forecast about where they're headed and and what they're going to do. And And so I think you know, this comes back to whether they can shape household expectations to say, no, firms shouldn't raise their prices in anticipation of that spiral because the Fed is going to nip it in the bud. And it's a really challenging thing to pin down. And, you know, I'd say that the macroeconomists are still, you know, this is a heated debate about where do expectations come from and can the Fed actually control it or are they just following the pack? But I think, you know, if you look at the data right now, I think that people generally expect that a lot of the supply chain related inflation is relatively under control. And that's going to sort of phase out as we shift back into services. And the bigger question is related to the labor market. So I think that people's financial lives pretty much fall into two buckets, right? There's the one that we can control and there's the one that we can't, right? We can control our savings rates, at least to some degree. We can control our spending, to some degree. We can control whether we set goals and and develop a plan or whether we seek out the help of a financial advisor. And we can't control interest rates and the markets and the inflation rate and housing prices. How do you walk the line between the controllable and the uncontrollable? Yeah, I think that's a great framing for for thinking about the challenges that we all face in setting our household budgets and setting our household goals. At least personally, I've tended to be pretty dismissive of get-rich-quick schemes and focus more on the downside risks rather than on the upside. And so my approach is generally to identify and minimize risks. So we're going to be exposed to a lot of things that we can't control but how do we minimize our exposure to those things? So Because an you're an economist, one, and this is what economists do, identify and minimize <laughs> risks. There it is, right? So, you know, once you start looking at the world that way, um, it, it means that maybe you're not quite as fun uh, as a dinner party guest from time to time, <laughs> because you can be the wet blanket on, on things. But also, I think it gives you that kind of a lens to assess investment opportunities or, or those kinds of big life decisions. I mean, you know, the obvious one that jumps out to me is just, you know, all the commercials during the Super Bowl for crypto mm-hmm. and things like that, right? Then I think we should be highly suspicious of these kinds of products that sound too good to be true and and that really have no sort of true value. But I think just in terms of setting a broader investing approach for, you know, long-term diversified investing and looking for those kinds of investments that deliver reliable cash flows. I think that, you know, that kind of framework says, okay, you know, I think that there are risks that are out there in the world. And which of those am I willing to be exposed to? So I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. But before we do, let me just remind everyone that retirement is a big deal. And since women live longer, we have to make our savings last longer. That means we have to plan smarter. Visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. You'll get a fresh look at your finances and you'll be able to work with experts to create a plan to help build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth so that you can have the retirement that you've been dreaming about because it's your money. Make it count. Get started at planefe.com slash hermoney and speak with an advisor today. I am 
talking with Ben Keyes from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. He's an economics professor. So we were talking before the break about investing and identifying the risks in your portfolio. If you're an average investor, whether you're investing inside a 401k, outside of a retirement account, what does that mean? Does it mean rebalancing? Does it mean just continuing to dollar cost average into the investments that you had previously chosen? I mean, are there any sort of specific risks that you want to put your finger on besides crypto? I, that's a, the easiest place to start, right? The lowest hanging fruit. I mean, I think that there's certainly you know good reason to think about rebalancing and to just keep a close eye on the mix of assets that you're exposed to as rates rise. There's going to be more opportunities for bonds, basically. You know, bonds that have delivered very low returns in in recent years. We're going to start to see those uh, tending to deliver a bit better return, and so you know that might be a place to park some money that might have been sitting around in a savings account where you said, I'm not even going to bother <laughs> with the bond market right now. Yeah, I think thinking about the tax uh, consequences and the tax implications, right? You know, the tax code has really become a political football, seems to change um, with every change in the administration. And so keeping an eye on, on your investments from a tax standpoint and understanding sort of the differences in the, the types of retirement accounts so those are more the kinds of risks at the moment that I would be flagging. I think that the kind of aim to diversify and, and aim to avoid volatility and things that are highly volatile, depending on the swings in the cycle, and those are the same kind of things. And so it's not just the cryptos of the world, but you know the the meme stocks and the feeling like, well, I you know I missed out on in, investing in in GameStop or something else that went up ten times, right? I think. It's just keeping that slow and steady mindset and avoiding the the flashy distractions and knowing that those kind of things have much bigger potential risks than a diversified portfolio. I know you study real estate, and that's one of the areas in which I think a lot of people feel that they've missed the boat. We had mortgage rates that were rising with the expectations from the Fed. They've actually fallen a bit in the past couple of weeks because the war and investors sort of fleeing into the safety of treasuries, regardless of whether they rise a point or fall a point, what do home buyers need to know about what's ahead in the months to come? Yeah, I mean, you know, housing and talking about inflation as well is something we should talk about. And as we've seen prices and rents rise extraordinary levels over these last two years, on the interest rate side, you know, it's still a great time to lock in a, a 30-year rate below 4%. You were talking about remembering in the days of 18% mortgages. A rate below 4% is really extraordinary. And if you've missed out on locking that rate in before, you still have the chance to do so as, as rates have dipped back down. You know, I think rates in large part are going to be driving sort of affordability for a lot of households and thinking about the size of a house that they can afford. And so usually we think about the down payment as being a, a critical dimension for a, a household and then the the monthly payment. And, and if you can make those monthly payments, you know, right now what we've seen is that prices are way up, but also as rates have gone up, you know, rates, remember a year ago, rates were, you know, two and three quarters, mm -hmm. really remarkable low rates. And so as we've seen rates rise over the past year, that started to put the squeeze on affordability because not only are house prices rising, but it, unusually house prices are rising in a period where interest rates are also rising. And so I think the challenge now is going to be to find those kind of affordable opportunities and, and find those chances to 
to purchase. And for those who are you know, already in a house, then the choices become, well, what do I do with the home equity that I might have accrued over this time period? Do you think that housing prices will come down? I mean, if people are feeling like, wow, I just missed it and I can't afford to buy what I want to buy right now, do you think that we'll see some sort of reversal? I mean, you used the word bubble earlier and I didn't pounce on it, although I was tempted to. Is this a stock market bubble? Is it a housing bubble? You know, I use bubble casually, probably shouldn't have. You know, stock market, you know, hard to say there in terms of where prices are and if you look relative to a few months ago, they're down. If you look relative to a, a little bit further back, they're up. The housing market, to me, does not look like a bubble. And, and I think that's kind of challenging for some people as they look at where prices are and they think about the experience, especially of the mid-2000s, where they saw prices rising so rapidly. But this is a different creature in terms of what's driving house prices. I mean, we're seeing very strong demand coming for demographic reasons. And so we're seeing household formation from millennials who are aging into their prime home buying years. I think that's a big part of it. And then we're seeing second home and retirement home purchases by baby boomers. We're seeing a a big uptick by investors who are buying single family homes to rent them out. And then we're we're starting to see a return of some foreign buyers um, who had kind of left the housing market there for a bit at the height of the pandemic. And then on the flip side, to sort of accommodate that demand, supply remains very limited. So we're just not getting a lot of new building happening. And and this is a function of rising materials costs, rising labor costs, and our immigration policy, which is not helping on that front at all. And then just really tight local zoning, local restrictions on building. And so it's gotten more and more difficult to build. And so we're we're choosing to not provide more housing as as there's demand for it. And, And what this has amounted to is a very small amount of inventory. If you look at the number of homes for sale nationwide, and this is coming from Altos Research, they estimate there are under 250,000 homes for sale in the entire country right now. Wow. Does that include apartments? So I believe it's single family homes, but that number was a million homes for sale like listed at this time in 2015. So you know we're at a quarter of that inventory and prices are, are way up because of this. And so there's a real disconnect between supply and demand. And I don't think it's fueled by credit. And I think that's what's so different from the roaring 2000s was it was really a credit boom that funneled money into housing. And so I don't think that prices are over are high because people are overextended. I don't think that people are really stretching in terms of the down payment or the monthly payment. I think the underwriting standards are still pretty tight. As anyone who's gone through a refinancing knows, they're asking for a lot of paperwork and a lot of documentation of income and assets. So I don't foresee prices coming way down. And, you know, that might vary uh, market to market. You know, it's a very, a lot of of heterogeneity across the country as you go from city to city and try to understand what's happening in different housing markets. So it's certainly the case that some places are a bit frothier than others. And, you know, especially you think about the work from home pressures, the stories you read about people fleeing the Bay Area and moving to Boise, Idaho, or somewhere like that. Well, is that going to persist or is at some point people are going to say, hey, I need to go back to the office in Silicon Valley, right? If people go back to the office, then you could certainly see in some of those markets prices come down. But I think in a lot of the core metros that that at least I've looked at, you know, I, I think that this sort of push to, to higher prices might be here for quite a while. 
It's all so interesting. I have one final question for you, but before I ask it, let me just remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union. It's a great credit union that helps its members take control of their money by using a variety of tools and a variety of resources. BCU's passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom by providing caring support and services that create the value that you deserve. And you can all learn more at www.bcu.org. So Ben, I feel like all of us are just looking for reasons to calm down, to just calm down. Do you, as you look at the landscape, have any calm or reassuring words that we can lean on right now? Well, you know, I've done my best to be as positive as possible and put a positive spin on a really uncertain outlook right now. I mean, it's just, it's a reality, right? I think it's, you know, better to be a realist sometimes and say, yeah, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world and and we don't know what direction this this invasion of, of Ukraine is going to take in all honesty. I mean, it's just so hard to predict. I don't think anyone predicted that this would really happen. And, and so, you know, from that standpoint, we have to be not too hard on ourselves to feel like we have to accept that the world is a more stressful place right now than it was just a few weeks ago. But at the end of the day, I think that the U.S. economy is very strong right now. I think we have a really booming labor market, and it's exciting to see how quickly it's recovered relative to the Great Recession, which seemed to drag on and on in terms of the labor market really struggling. And so, you know, from a labor market standpoint, the economy is really getting better. And and again, you know, there are different pockets around the country where that's less true. But I think overall, we are seeing an economy that's not overextended. It's not being fueled by cheap credit. And so lending standards are relatively disciplined. And I, I think you know, we can sort of um, expect that a lot of these improvements are going to continue and that the Fed is going to react to rein in some of this inflation as best they can. So I think from an individual standpoint, as you said before, there are things you can control and, and things that you can't. And you have to accept that there are going to be things that are outside of your control and just thinking about ways in which you can you know, mitigate those risks. And I guess at the end of the day, look for the opportunities that sort of meet your standards for that trade-off between risk and return. Well, I feel calmer. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for being here. If our listeners want to learn more about you or or read your work, where should they go? Well, they can go to my website to read some of my academic papers. I I don't have much in the way of writing for a, a broader audience, but they can easily find me by just Googling Ben Keys Wharton and they'll find some of my research on on household finance and mortgage finance topics. It is no secret to this audience that when I took Intro to Economics at Penn, I got a C. And so <laughs> I just let me just put it out there that if you had been my professor, I don't think I would have gotten a C because you explained it all really, really clearly. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. And to the rest of you, thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you once again to Ben Keyes for helping us break down everything that's going on in the economy right now and helping us take a very deep breath. I know many of you have questions about what's happening now, and if you do... 
please write to us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Catherine will pick them up and we'll do a special show to answer your questions during this time. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon.